0: Beijing is preparing for a big gathering. On Sunday, the top brass of the Chinese Communist Party will meet amid the scarlet carpets and the towering marble columns of the Great Hall of the People on Tiananmen Square for the 20th Party Congress. The meetings, held every five years, have been used to stage orderly transfers of power between generations of leaders. But this Congress may be marked by a break in convention. Xi Jinping is expected to secure an unprecedented third term. During his decade-long reign, he's amassed more power and wielded it more ruthlessly than any leader since Mao Zedong. He's purged rivals, stripped citizens of their individual rights, and he's trying to reshape the world order from within. As Xi's power grows, so does China's ambition. This is The Economist Asks, I'm Anne McElvoy and this week we're asking where will Xi Jinping take China next? Understanding what the man at the top thinks has never been more important. My guest Kevin Rudd has spent many years trying to do just that. He was Australia's Prime Minister from 2007 to 2010 and again in 2013. He met Xi several times during his political career when they'd converse in Mandarin. Since leaving politics, Mr. Rudd has become an authority on all things Xi. As president of the Asia Society and through his scholarship, he's just earned a PhD from Oxford on the Chinese leader's worldview. Kevin Rudd, welcome to The Economist Asks.
1: Good to be on The Economist podcast and I hope I can answer some of the questions you ask.
0: Now, the 20th Chinese Communist Party Congress starts in Beijing on Sunday, October the 16th. And There's little doubt that Xi will secure a third five-year term as party chief. The Congress is also setting the direction for policy and, and for politics in the next few years. So what do you think Xi's vision is now for China? And is it sticking with where he's been so far or outlining a new direction here?
1: Well, you're right, Xi Jinping will be comfortably reappointed. I would hazard a guess by about 2,368 votes to zero. So it'll be a narrow win for the General Secretary. The big question is, will anything change in critical areas like the economy and foreign security policy? On the economy, in the last five years, Xi Jinping has doubled down in the direction of the Marxist left, abandoning parts of Deng Xiaoping's earlier economic development model. The big question we have therefore is given the impact that's had on declining economic growth, will he course correct? The evidence to date suggests he won't. It will either be of two things in my judgment, muddling through, that is a bit of a prize for everybody, or a doubling down further towards the ideological left. But I don't see a return to the market orientation as it was before. The second point is just on foreign policy. The Congresses for 20 years now have said that China is experiencing a period of strategic opportunity. That's ideological code language for no major wars on the horizon. We can focus on the economy and expanding our foreign policy influence. I suspect that expression will change in some way as China begins to respond to its analysis of a worsening external strategic environment.
0: That's really fascinating and also a bit worrying. And we'll come back to that shortly, I think. Just to find out a bit more about the way you see his philosophy, it has this clunky title of Xi Jinping Thought on Socialism with Chinese Characteristics for a new era, there is speculation that that's going to be shortened officially to Xi Jinping thought. How significant would that be, or even the idea that that is talked about in his case?
1: Within the strange ecosystem of the Chinese Communist Party and the ideological metaphysics on which it's constructed, these sorts of formulations actually matter because they infer a hierarchy in the various bodies of thought which have contributed to socialism in China over the years. Only Mao Zedong's body of thought is called thought. It's called Mao Zedong thought or Mao Zedong zixia. If Xi Jinping's descriptor about his own personal ideological cocktail gets shortened to Xi Jinping thought, he's elevated to Mao in terms of parallel status in the communist pantheon.
0: I was scared to ask you that, and I wondered if it's true, and I, I know that outsiders often make that linked to Mao, but you genuinely believe in Xi's case that he would possibly be thinking that way. And it's something of a risk, isn't it, given the status of Mao in, as you put it, the metaphysics and also in the system itself?
1: Well, right now, it's certainly in the last several years, Xi Jinping has re-periodized Chinese revolutionary history. What he's done is condense post-49 history effectively into three periods, the Mao Zedong period through until seventy six when China stood up. The Deng Xiaoping period from 77 through until Xi's appointment in 2012 is the period when China became prosperous. And now we're in the Xi Jinping period when China now becomes powerful. And that's why he calls it the new era. If he elevates his body of thought to a status parallel to Mao, he's starting to squeeze out the Deng Xiaoping period as well. And so there'll be two dominant figures in Chinese revolutionary history, Mao Zedong and Xi Jinping.
0: And how much does that ideology and that self-confidence of putting himself front and centre of the system and that in a country that has waxed and waned about personality cults, how much do you think it's driving what actually happens as opposed to simply putting him on a particular pedestal?
1: Well, my argument, having read most of the stuff now that Xi Jinping has had attributed to his name, and I wouldn't recommend that to anybody listening to this podcast because it's enough to drive a man to drink, but if you do it, it's quite plain that Xi Jinping is an ideological believer. Uh, He is a Marxist-Leninist, almost fundamentalist, and whereas for the 35-year period which elapsed between The rise of Deng, through until 2012, ideology was pushed to one side and became a convenient piece of political camouflage across the top of an increasingly rambunctious and riotous Chinese state capitalist economy. The bottom line is with Xi Jinping, ideology is back. His Marxism-Leninism matters and has become a new, as it were, communication device for high-level changes in China's strategic and macro policy direction.
0: You first met Xi in 1986 when he was mayor of Tiamen and you were a junior official in the Australian embassy. What was your first impression? Um, What stood out about him to you?
1: Well, way back then, I had uh, frankly no idea that he was the son of a then Politburo member, Xi Zhongxun. And his father was then active in Deng's Politburo and his father having been earlier purged by Mao both during the Cultural Revolution and back in the 60s as well. All I can recall of that initial meeting was uh, here was a young, aspiring Communist Party vice mayor of the city of Xiamen. And I thought to myself he was relatively young to hold that position.
0: You met him again later in 2010. By then you were Australian prime minister. So lots of things had changed for both of you. How did you find him then and what did you talk about?
1: We met in Canberra. I had him round to the prime minister's residence called The Lodge uh, for a very long one-on-one in the middle of a Canberra winter over a fire with a few glasses of Australian red. He was already vice president of the country and was already heir apparent. And that's why I spent a lot of time with him. We chatted away in Chinese, but primarily about Chinese history and party history. We talked about the modernization of the party. We talked about future directions for the party. What do I recall from that most of all? He was the first Chinese leader I'd ever sat down with who didn't use a note. (laughs) He uh, simply extemporated about everything.
0: That's probably because you were dealing out the Australian red. (laughs) He probably lost his notes by then.
1: I hope so. That's why we deal it out in large quantities. It's, It's actually quite good. Better than the French equivalents and considerably less expensive.
0: Kevin Rod for the Australian wine industry, it's almost a foregone conclusion, uh, as I mentioned uh, at the top of our conversation, that he will be reappointed as leader. There's no sign of direct challenge in the party. But how secure do you think he is under the surface and does he face any political opposition?
1: At this stage, the honest answer is not really. He's certainly the subject of criticism from a range of people for example over his overreach on foreign policy in extending too much of a uh, helping hand to vladimir putin given how badly the ukraine has turned out there's a lot of criticism of him in terms of the mismanagement of the economy by lurching too far to the marxist left added to the implementation of zero covid slowing china's economic growth rate hugely But these threads of criticism have yet to coalesce in any meaningful form through a political figure or groups of figures, which would be of substantive impact in Politburo politics. And we should bear in mind this. Xi Jinping is a master Machiavellian. He has conducted at least three major purges of substantive figures who he believed were potential opponents. And he's had a rolling 10-year anti-corruption campaign which has in effect constituted a reign of terror for everyone else in the system so that if you were misbehaving politically, you could be had in terms of an allegation of corruption. But I go back to the core point. Policy critiques, either foreign policy or the economy, still has shown no sign of coalescing around an organised group or individual capable of challenging him in a substantive way. What we need to look out for on that front is, does the economy really go through the floor in the future? And secondly, if Vladimir Putin was to fall through his own palace coup and be removed from office, either physically or politically, this would have deep ramifications within the Chinese system, not enough to unseat Xi Jinping, but it would be quite destabilizing of his leadership.
0: You've said that the fundamental weakness for Xi is the economy. It's his Achilles heel, in your words. How likely is it that he will correct the course of the economy? And indeed, does he know how to do that? Or are there also factors, notwithstanding the strong state control in China, that are outside his control here?
1: Well, we should understand why he's taken the economy to the Marxist left five years ago. And by the way, that was signalled in the first instance in the 19th Party Congress report, ideologically. There was a formulation which said that we're in a new period warranting greater party and state intervention in the market than before. Secondly, the reason he's done it, having expressed it ideologically, is that he's deeply nervous about the private sector in China ultimately surpassing the Chinese Communist Party in terms of its long-term political influence. And so there's a method to the madness here, which is we need to keep the billionaire class under control. Thirdly, he also faces a reduced growth consequence of this political decision. I think it's very difficult for him to walk away from the political and ideological logic of what he did five years ago. He may try to muddle through, keep the existing formulations in place ideologically, then tell the new premier and the vice premiers responsible for the economy, go and fix it, But frankly, that gives them very limited parameters within which to operate.
0: You've also noted that Xi is publicly rejecting the idea of being in strategic competition with the US because it goes against his guiding thought that the relationship should not be governed by conflict or confrontation. And there's talk of mutual respect, win-win, etc. But in reality, competition is growing between the two powers So what would push Xi to change his ideological framework on the US? And if we accept that this competition does exist, what does he take away from that?
1: This is complex, and I think we need to see it within two timeframes. Let's call it the long term, by which I mean starting in the 2030s. This process of strategic competition, in reality, however they choose to describe it, will continue, grow, become more intense, because Xi Jinping has already determined the prize. That is when he announced in 2012 that China by 2049 would achieve the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. That's ideological and nationalist code language for becoming the preeminent regional and global power. My own judgment is Xi Jinping may use the party Congress to place the party on a long-term national security footing by changing this language about this period of strategic opportunity that China has had for the last 10 years, which means no big wars on the horizon, he may change that to put the party on notice that there are large challenges coming down the railway tracks towards him. But at a tactical level for the immediate couple of years, he may well have still an interest in taking the temperature down. And the reason for that is, that stabilizing relationship might be useful, because right now he doesn't want a war by accident over Taiwan, because there's still too great a risk, he might lose it. And so therefore, there is a tactical short-term interest in stabilizing this relationship, while China prepares long-term for what they do see, in my judgment, to be an inevitable confrontation with the United States over Taiwan in the 2030s.
0: So in that range of possibilities about a flashpoint for US-China relations in Taiwan, if I understand you correctly, you do think that war could break out. You've got a book out called The Avoidable War. So how does the scenario get avoided if it is possible to do so, given that you seem to think that it's a matter of perhaps a a slower path, not a path away from military conflict?
1: The danger for the 2020s is... Not war by design, but war by accident. Neither side wants a war in the 2020s over Taiwan because neither side currently believes that they have a preponderance of force. And in China's case, they're concerned about the financial and economic impact of sanctions against them. So what the Chinese are seeking to do is to improve their military financial and economic position over the next several years to be in a much more robust and commanding position militarily and economically in the 2030s. So the burden of my book on the avoidable war is how do you reduce the risk of conflict by accident during the 2020s? Because there's too much metal flying around every day of the week. There are aircraft being intercepted. There are ships at sea with a risk of uh, collision, each of which could trigger an incident and give a nationalism be escalated into something much worse, as history warns us. For the 2030s, it's a different challenge, because I believe Xi Jinping does want to return Taiwan, if necessary, by force to Chinese sovereignty, while he's still in command of the show. And that means that the only way to prevent it from happening in the 2030s is not through guardrails that I recommend for the here and now. It's through effective American allied and Taiwanese deterrence built up in the meantime to make the political risk still too great for Xi Jinping to move against Taiwan in the 2030s.
0: Let's look at the US response to Xiism at the moment. What do you make of the newsworthy story of the week on that front is President Biden's toughening on exports, on semiconductors, etc. Is this clamping down of that kind of cooperation with China likely to affect Xi? And how do you think he's going to respond?
1: As I indicated before, I would not be surprised at the Party Congress report contains new language in it about China's external strategic environment being much more adverse, much sharper, much more confrontational than in the past. And these are not just idle reflections out of Xi's pen the night before the Congress. These are deliberated on by the think tanks and the advisory institutions for months and sometimes years before as they pour over their analysis of what they think the United States and its allies are up to. So the change in ideological formulation on China's external strategic environment matters, because if it is a solid and clear-cut change, without wishing to be too dramatic about it, what I'd say is it begins to put China, the system, on notice that they are moving towards some type of war footing for the 2030s.
0: Sounds like you don't like the Biden policy very much.
1: Well, on the Biden policy, uh, they are seeking to, through their own national China strategy, to effect long-term deterrence for the 2030s, which is for the United States to remain ahead in one of the three principal categories of power, technological power, as well as broad economic power, as well as military power, because that and their logic for the 2030s, which I understand, is necessary for effective deterrence come then. But, of course, each action has its own equal and opposite reaction. And all I'm saying is, The accumulation of what the United States has done since H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor under Trump in late 2017, designated China as a strategic competitor. The five years of emerging bipartisan U.S. strategy is likely to produce a change in China's formal strategic doctrine.
0: A question that's often on my mind is to what extent the outside world could influence China. It sounds like you believe that it does.
1: Yes, I do. And it's not simply being a romanticist for a different age. It's because China is run by a group of Marxist-Leninists who are deeply focused on the calculation of material power. And therefore, when the Chinese system calculates American military, economic, and technological power, they have systemologies which do that. And then they roll in the cumulative impact of American alliances, both in Asia and Europe, particularly around aggregate US foreign policy influence and aggregate economic power with European and global sanctions, for example, against Russia over Ukraine. What we do, the capabilities we have in the rest of the world and the extent to which it's organised through a pan-allied strategy does matter. Of course, the principal determinant is Chinese power and a leader determined to change the status quo, and that's Xi Jinping.
0: You've spent so many years studying Xi and his thoughts. What is it that you feel like you still don't know about him and would like to find out?
1: In the work I've done recently on Xi Jinping, I describe him ideologically as a Marxist-Leninist nationalist. And of course, if you know the history of Marxism-Leninism, it's supposed to be internationalist rather than nationalist. But I think the nationalism bit goes to the Chinese tradition, and it also speaks to a party still in need of accumulating new layers of legitimacy, particularly if China's economic growth rate begins to slow over time. What I've seen quite clearly in the first 10 years is a Marxist-Leninist narrative unfolding domestically with real policy shifts on the ground in politics, political control, and in the economy at large. What I'd like to know is how much work is now underway with Xi Jinping applying Marxist-Leninist principles to the evolution of a new international order if it was to be anchored in Chinese geostrategic power. That is, I think, a huge question for the... Research and analytical community to give us some light and insight on.
0: Kevin Rudd, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Good to be with you. And do let us know what you think. What do you wish you knew about what Xi Jinping thinks? Write to us at podcasteconomist.com or you can tweet us at The Economist. And to understand more about how Xi rose to become the most powerful man in China and the world, you must listen to our new podcast series, The Prince. Over eight episodes, my colleague Su Lin Wong charts Xi's ascension to the top. You'll find it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're already a dedicated Prince listener, you'll be thrilled to know that Su Lin will be back next week with a new bonus episode. Do keep an ear out for that. And as the CCP's Congress gets underway, our China team will be raising the curtain on the event. Read their analysis and an in-depth special report on the world China wants on our website. But as I always remind you, the only way to enjoy the full range of our journalism is to become a subscriber. We have a special introductory offer for our listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell, the bookings producer is Melanie Starling-Condon and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist.